Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode within our series SCAS Talks Spotlight, we will dive into some of the many aspects of academic freedom. In the end of October 2023, a series of events within the framework of A Week on Academic Freedom were held in different locations in Uppsala. A Week on Academic Freedom was initiated by SCAS and organized in collaboration with the research program Democracy and Higher Education and with the research center Higher Education and Research as Objects of Study, also called HERO, both at Uppsala University. What is academic freedom? What does it mean for the individual researcher and for institutions? What kind of threats are there and how can we protect academic freedom both for research and teaching. This episode of SCAS Talk Spotlight explores these questions with the help of some of the participants during the week. Sherine Albeck Erbey and Kerstin Salim start with detangling what academic freedom means and entails. So my name is Shirin Albeck Jaberg. I'm a professor of political science, but I'm also deputy director for Higher Education and Research as Object of Studies, which is the center for studying higher education and research, of course. I have always been interested or researched the relationship between the government and government agencies. And in the Swedish setting, there is a peculiarity with public universities, and that's they are the legal person of the state, that is a government agency. So I would say that this has become a very natural interest for me, research-wise. My name is Kerstin Salin. I'm a professor of organization studies at the, the Department of Business Studies here at Uppsala University. Like Shirin, I've had a long-standing interest in the public sector, in organizing the public sector, and maybe primarily in how new ideas about governance and new forms of governance are introduced. But I also have an interest in the governance of universities and in academic freedom, also from practical experiences. I've been Deputy Vice Chancellor of Uppsala, and I have also been the Secretary General for Humanities and Social Sciences at the Swedish Research Council, and I've been active in the, and I'm still active in the Royal Academy of Sciences. And in these diverse roles, I have sort of come to reflect a lot about governance, academic freedom, and collegiality, which I will come back to maybe. What is your definition of academic freedom? Well, it's not my personal definition of academic freedom, but it's a kind of definition that is used both in the literature, but also by international agreements and so on. And that is that academic freedom, there are at least two dimensions. One is about the institutional autonomy of the public universities. And then we have the individual level, which is the academic freedom for individual researchers and teachers. And it's really important to understand that the individual level doesn't mean that academic freedom is a private privilege, but what it means is that you have, as a teacher and researcher, to submit to academic norms and values. So there is some kind of collectivity there as well. But I would say that these are the two main components, and then you can actually 
divide them into others. But institutional autonomy and individual, and institutional autonomy is actually a necessary but not sufficient condition for individual academic freedom. What I mean by that is that university management can actually hinder the possibilities of academic freedom on an individual level. So they have to correspond, actually. And for the researcher and for the teacher, academic freedom means that you can pick what to study and you can publish your results wherever you like and you can distribute the results you come up with. Then you can divide it even more. You have the classical Lehrfreiheit und Lernfreiheit. So it's also including the students' possibility to learn. Being a biologist, I like to think about ecosystems. So this also sounds like an ecosystem in itself. Things are influencing each other in this system of higher education. Yes, definitely. And we sometimes even use the term ecosystem. So it's extremely important that as an individual researcher and as an individual teacher, academic teacher, you are controlled by the scientific norms. And these are upheld by systems such as peer reviewing and examination. So it's not that you can do whatever you like to, but it's really to adhere to the scientific norms and to let the scientific norms control your work not any other sort of management ideas or political ideas. So it's a freedom from political and commercial is sometimes seen as ideologists. So it should be the scientific norms that are in center. Exactly. And that's really, really important because it's not political ideas on what is the important things to research or teach and so on. I think what you are addressing also, Shashtin, could be formulated also in the term of academic duty. Being part of the academic community means that you also have to contribute by doing peer review or by sitting in different kind of collegial boards and so on. Your freedom is not freedom from duty or collegial duty, but we give and take in this kind of profession. Yes, and that whole system relies upon the idea that knowledge is a common good. So we are jointly forwarding the knowledge. It's not sort of a private good. That's also why we have difficulties when you try to keep results secret, for for example, for commercial reasons. And this whole collectivity, the idea that knowledge relies on collective actions and collective contributions is also revealed in the terminology we use. So, for example, the term academic citizenship. So you are a citizen of this collective. You have a duty to contribute with these kind of services. I'm actually quite unsure how well this idea is transferred to the younger generation. Do we bring this up in the PhD education, for instance? What kind of institution is the university? What does it mean to be part of the academic community and the academic citizenship? I don't think we are doing this enough, actually. Shirin, you have recently written a report on academic freedom. Can you tell us a little bit more on your thoughts there that you also mentioned in the beginning? Well, the thing is that in Sweden, we always tend to think of ourselves as a very modern country and we are 
you know, very progressive and so on. But when you start to analyze, for instance, the institutional autonomy of the public universities in Sweden, like 90-95% of all the universities in Sweden are publicly funded and also a legal part of the state. And this is exactly a problem when we talk about institutional autonomy, that the universities have this public organization as administrative authorities, which means that there is no real arm length distance between the political sphere or the political majority and the universities as such. And this might have worked in the old days when there was some kind of informal contract between the political side and the university and the academics, because there were sort of boundaries that wouldn't be passed. But I will say that this kind of informal contract doesn't work in our time because things have changed. We see what happens in countries actually quite close to us, partly the illiberal problems of more or less authoritarian regimes who want to steer the universities. But we also have, which is not authoritarian, but democratically elected political majorities who want to decide more what we should focus on, what we should research, what kind of curriculum we should have and so on. This is very much a reality in Sweden today. So there are no sufficient boundaries between the political side and the universities. This really stands out in a comparative European perspective. When this was analyzed in a study made by Terence Karen et al., published in 2017, they were ranking all the EU countries, including the UK, according to different kinds of dimensions, for instance, how legally protected the uh, universities were from political steering. And we ended up in Sweden on the 26th of 28 places. I mean, that is very low. And studies that have followed gives the exact same result. And this goes also for the legal protection for academic freedom. We do have in our instrument of government, uh, that is the constitutional law, We have protection for the research freedom, but we don't have any protection for higher education. And some of you might say that, well, does it really matter if we have it put down in legislation? And I would say yes. If we compare ourselves with Finland, for instance, they put this kind of protection into their fundamental law in 2000. And according to comparative research between Sweden and Finland, this has given some protection to when the Finnish lawmakers are deciding on new laws on the universities and and higher education. They are actually hindered to go too far by this kind of legislation. So we have very little legal protection for academic freedom in Sweden. Sweden is not best in class. No, but we tend to think so. You said earlier things have changed. Do you have an example? What has changed? If you look, for instance, in what we call the appropriation directives to the Research Council, for instance, the Swedish Research Council, if you compare the kind of block grant that the Swedish Research Council got in 2003 with how it looks like today, it's very much more directed from the government what kind of research that should be targeted. I mean, there's still a lot of money for free research, but still to a higher extent, there is a list on how many million Swedish crowns that should be spent on very narrow research question, actually. And, and the list is much longer today than it was 20 years ago. And I would also say that it's a 
astonishing in the Swedish case how Swedish politicians, both from the left wing and the right wing, how they dive into giving instructions on the curricula level, what should be included in, for instance, the teacher's education or what kind of courses or knowledge that should be brought up in the social work education and so on. That really stands out in international comparison. I think in general, we talk a lot about the academic freedom when it comes to research, and that is, of course, extremely important. But we shouldn't forget the educational side because the control of education is in many ways a tighter control and more extraordinary control. Like, for example, detailed directives of what to include in in social work education, which is the latest example. There was also an incident this summer when uh, research funding for development projects was stopped after people had applied and even the scientific community had started to evaluate the applications. That was very upsetting, I think. That showed no respect for the kind of effort that was put into this kind of research application process. Just to withdraw the money after the application deadline was passed. That's a no-no. When the protest came, the um, government, they just didn't understand. It seemed like they did not understand the conditions of research or research funding. But also like half a year ago when they shortened the period for the external members of our university boards from 36 months to 17, which is I mean, less than half the period. It was about 258 people that were nominated for different kind of university boards and and university colleges boards. And they did that and did not understand, our Minister of Higher Education did not understand that he was actually really displaying a disrespect for the institutional autonomy of the public universities, which was in itself a frightening insight. But quite a few or many vice chancellors went together and protested against this, right? Yes, I never seen such unity actually through the whole field. I mean, not only the university vice chancellors, but also the chairs of the boards and student organization and also our union. And they were so united. I never seen anything like it because it signaled I mean, it can sound like a small issue, but it signaled something that we do from the political side, whatever we feel. And the motivation here was that they needed people in the boards that had more of a security policy understanding, which is really a frightening thing, because what comes next? What kind of understanding should be in the boards? And we will get back to Kerstin Selin and her thoughts on collegiality and leadership at the end of this episode. On academic integrity, that was the title of the talk by Sverker Selin, Professor of Environmental History at the Royal Institute of Technology and non-resident long-term fellow for programs on environmental humanities at SCAS. He addressed how he has taken academic virtues and values more or less for granted but has recently had to rethink. What is the current discourse about academic integrity around the world and dominates web pages and new organizations and journals and so on is about the downside of this, where it is not upheld. 
which seems to be a, a growing actually problem. It's a long history, but it's a growing problem in a globalizing, also increasingly commercial higher, higher education enterprise, where it's the cheating, it's the fraud, it's the problems with predatory journals, it's the kind of downsides of this, where you actually, both institutions and individuals and firms and all sorts of actors in the system try to short-circuit the system and cut corners and find easy, cheap ways to get advantages. So there is a discourse about the downsides, and there is this sort of the old-fashioned, in a sense, list of virtues that we carry. There's this, this tension between these and in a sense, a quite sad situation that we tend to be so obsessed with the downsides. So is it first when things go wrong that we start to think about what it actually means to have this freedom and integrity? Yeah, and I think there is a relationship that is not just uh, incidental. I think there is a causal relationship. It is the growth of the system. It is the, the increasing commercialization, the degree and diploma hunt that is ongoing and how this creates well, it doesn't create the problem. Cheating has always been there, but it aggravates it and makes it grow sometimes out of hand and also requires some defense because even those who act on this marketplace, so to speak, they don't like too much problems of this kind because that downgrades their brand in a sense. That is, I think, why this obsession has, has been growing and there must be ways of dealing with this that is not just about battling misconduct. There must be something more interesting about this that has to do with also our institutional setup and the way we use and develop our institutions. This is also a challenge for universities, even those that act and appear very properly and, and appropriately. They, we all need to be aware of this to stay afloat because it's about also the standing and reputation of higher education at large. But then, I mean, there are problems within the system, like you describe cheating the hunt for publications is a well-known factor and also funding and all these things within the system. But then there are also threats from outside, like from politicians wanting to steer higher education and research. And we have seen some examples in the world and also in Sweden recently. That should also be mentioned. That's also part of this. I mentioned this causal relationship. There is another causal relationship between what you describe the steering efforts from or attempts from, well, politicians or other social interests of various kinds. And these social interests can sometimes use politicians. I think we need to understand these attempts as, to some extent, ideological. I mean, different political denominations have their different views on, on knowledge. And if it is a useful tool for ordinary people, for example, who should be educated some certain ideologies downgrade the importance of education for people and say enough is enough. And others have a higher value of knowledge as a tool of emancipation, for example, and then they value it more highly. So this plays out in this. And I think the growth of right-wing populism and the conservative nationalism means that forces in society that tend to have a more hierarchical view of society and the body politic, so to speak, have gained ground, and that is reflected in educational policies in many parts of Europe and elsewhere. And also, I think, adding to this is to use education for more distinctly instrumentalist purpose, for example, national security, and to just sort of nationalistically looking at industrial interests in your own country, for example. Also, some of these 
political forces that we're talking about here tend to be also downgrading the importance of certain societal issues, like, for example, gender equality, intersectionality, climate, environment. They have a different view of immigration than others and so on. So the real danger is when this translates into educational politics. We haven't seen so much of that yet, but it might be happening. And I think part of the discussion right now is about, not precisely about this playing out in full scale yet, but it's, so to speak, around the corner. And we we need to think about what it might entail. I think that creates some anxiety to this debate. It's a discussion of concern. And you could look at both these forces, both the expansion and commercialization and the sort of degree-seeking a kind of development of higher education in parallel with this educational politics, hierarchical, conservative, anti-emancipatory educational politics, as if they tend to unite, it would be sort of a dangerous cocktail. Again, I think don't think we're there yet, but this it makes, of course, democratic work to discuss these things are very important. So there are different components to academic freedom, making it a collection of freedoms. We have institutional and individual academic freedom, and both of these can be challenged from within the system by managerial systems, pressure to publish, funding schemes and many other factors. Additionally, there are political threats from the outside, something that has been noticeable in more authoritarian countries, where researchers can be prosecuted, imprisoned or even sentenced to death for pursuing certain research. How can academics promote and protect academic freedom? Daniel Schoenflug and Johan Heilbronn discuss these questions and we also get to meet the latest newcomer to the family of Institutes of Advanced Study, the Virtual Ukrainian Institute for Advanced Study, also called VUJAS. Yeah, Daniel Schoenflug, I was born and raised in Berlin, Germany, trained as a historian, still teaching history at the Free University of Berlin. But the focus of my work is actually as an academic manager at the Wissenschaftskolleg zu Berlin, where I'm head of academic programs. Johan Heilbronn, I'm a Dutch native sociologist by training, I studied philosophy and sociology, first in the Netherlands, then in France. And so most of my career has been in France. Well, I'm currently guest professor at the HERO program here in Uppsala, which unites uh, many researchers from different disciplines, all uh, more or less studying aspects of higher education, research, research policy, and so forth and so on. I would like to talk a little bit about your latest initiative, Daniel, the Virtual Ukrainian Institute for Advanced Study. Can you tell us a little bit about this new Institute for Advanced Study? The idea emerged in the course of the war when the Wissenschaftskolleg received a number of uh, scholars who took refuge from Ukraine. And we immediately saw that what we could do as an institution was very limited and that the wave of destruction in the country and then also the push out of the country was a larger and, and enduring movement. And so we teamed up with many other institutes for advanced studies, such as Discuss here in, uh, in Uppsala, but also Princeton and the Harvard Ukraine Research Institute, Stanford, Amsterdam Institute, and so on and so forth, and came up with a scheme that could be 
the preliminary phase of the foundation of an Institute for Advanced Study in Kiev. I say preliminary phase because it was entirely clear to us from the beginning that such an institute could not be founded in the context of this war. I mean, while bombs are dropping on the city, you cannot possibly aspire to, to do something like this. And also with large parts of academia on the move inside the country and out of the country, the preconditions for such an initiative are, are not so good. So we thought we need a preliminary phase. And in this phase, and this is why it's first of all a virtual institute for advanced study, we established a program with two kinds of fellowships. One kind of fellowship are the so-called Vuyas Fellowships Abroad. And this involves fellowships at many institutes for advanced study in Europe and the United States, where refugee scholars can find shelter for a year. The other group of fellowships goes to scholars who are in Ukraine, many of them unable to leave their universities or leave the country, men between, I don't know, 20 and 60, who are bound by military service or the, the request to stay in the country. And we plan to award fellowships to them too. By now we have funding from the Volkswagen Foundation for three years and we were able to secure by donation of the Institutes for Advanced Study, some 12 scholarships abroad and some 10 scholarships in Ukraine. This has started just this month. The fellowships are being awarded and we are starting to build up a team, partly in Berlin, partly in Kiev, of coordinators who now bring that group of 22 scholars together in virtual formats. So they meet on Zoom, they have a, a cooperative workspace, We're trying to find uh, hybrid formats to bring them together in the hope to create with these digital means a discussion between scholars out of the country, scholars inside the country, also to create some level of coherence of an academia that has exploded through the war and hopefully create some push against the brain drain that has really attacked the country through the war. I am very admirative. I think it's a great example of academic citizenship, if you can use this term. Thank you. You know, as academics, we are part of a civic community, and it ties in with the best traditions of the Institute for Advanced Study. This is an interesting example of a kind of academic institution, an Institute for Advanced Study. Fairly new, it's 20th century. The first institute was Princeton in the 1930s for European, German, Austrian, other refugees who were expelled or had to flee Nazi Germany or in Europe and so forth. The Americans invented this. I think the first fellow in Princeton was Albert Einstein, so that was an easy choice. <laughs> But anyway, I mean, this is a very interesting new kind of institutional form And it sort of exemplifies, par excellence, this idea of academic freedom. So it's uh, very interesting that the last couple of decades, this type of institute has expanded enormously, in fact. I think it's a very important element of the current academic life and one of the best incarnations of academic freedom and the And the Wissenschaftskolleg in Berlin has been very active in support and helping, accompanying 
the founding of other institutes for advanced study. And now this is the most recent example, Chapeau. Thank you. Interesting what you're saying about the proliferation of the model. And I mean, if I wanted to provoke a bit, one could say that in a situation where worldwide we're probably looking at a situation where academic freedom is rather shrinking than increasing, we see an expansion of the model of Center for Advanced Study. And if you look at the numbers, and I'm speaking of dozens, maybe even hundreds, it is East Asia that has the most foundations. Actually, we just said a visit from a group of scholars from Tsinghua University in Beijing who were in the verge of founding a new institute for advanced study. So is it like with these cook shows on TV? The more cook shows there are on TV, the less people cook at home. The more academic freedom is under pressure, the more this model of institutionalized academic freedom is proliferating. But isn't it at the same time maybe, in some cases, also losing the impetus of providing freedom that it used to have in the founding days that you've mentioned Princeton and this early history. This, this could be a very paradoxical recent development. Which means that, I mean, we, we shouldn't give up on academic freedom for universities, higher schools, and so forth, because now there are niches in the system, like Institutes for Advanced Study and maybe a few other places. I mean, in France, there are other institutions, like the Collège de France, which is very old, respectable institution, but it concerns very, very small numbers of scholars. And so we should be aware not to sort of give up on academic freedom for the mass institutions where you have uh, thousands of students. And no, in these institutions, it's also important. You know, we should think about how, in a very practical manner, how we shape academic freedom also for these institutes. What does it mean when you're in a vocational school in a university? So you have to deal with the constraints of job market and financing and so forth. What does the academic freedom mean there? Has there been a time where there was academic freedom? It was always contested. That's a safe generalization. And yet uh, it has up to today remained a defining feature. That's the important thing. It is a regulative idea and not something that can be fully realized, but a kind of ideal that developments in the real world can be measured against, cannot be reached. It's a necessary privilege we have. It's a privilege. People who work in other sectors don't have this privilege. But it's necessary, not so much for our group interests, but because for the things we do, the teaching, the research, the inquiries, and so forth. This is a necessary component of democracies and of, you know, science, scholarship, and so forth. You cannot really imagine science and scholarship without academic freedom. When you don't have academic freedom, you can maybe still have more or less very advanced forms of technocratic knowledge. But when you don't have the inquiry, the fundamental freedom to, to look at things that haven't been looked at or differently and so forth, then it's not given the development of the sciences and, and the scholarly activities over the past centuries, that's where we are. And indeed, when it's threatened, we have to defend it and we have to explain to everybody why this is indeed a privilege, but we need it, and not just for our group interests, but for 
society at large. And it's a privilege, as I think Olivier Beau, lawyer from France, pointed out, that has to be earned. There's a reason why academics have forms of freedom that other professions do not have. And it can only work in a good way if it is earned through a long process of studying, of learning, building up competence. And it is within that very realm that you're legitimate to live a freedom that other professions cannot live. And this process, especially if you see it from the Humboldtian point of view, is much more than building up competence and knowledge. It is a process of building that comes with moral judgment, that comes with a value system and so on and so forth. So yes, it is a privilege, but the privilege is attributed to a group of professionals who have a kind of training that other groups in society do not possibly have. So it's based on a culture. So what can we do then? Or what can academics do to promote academic freedom and protect it? Well, the first thing, of course, we should do <laughs> is to study it. It's a, perhaps a boring answer, but I mean, it's essential. Because we oppose for political or civic reasons certain political development, it doesn't mean we don't have to study them. On the contrary, we have to study very carefully what is going on, where, how, and so forth and so on. That's the first duty, obligation we have. And there are lots of things we don't know. We don't know very well. We don't know well enough. There is a lot of study to be done there. Perhaps one other thing is that we, as teachers and researchers and academic personnel, we shouldn't shy away from organizing. There's, of course, in our universe, it's a rather individualistic, and we work on our own little corners and so forth and so on, and academics often shy away from organizational initiatives. So I think that's so important. We should perhaps be more inventive in also organizing ourselves. In what way? The example of the Institute for Advanced Study was an example There, these people, they organized something. They invented a new organization. It's become very important. And so organizational effort, organizational creativity, because we have to find new ways, new forms to do this, is no doubt a second important thing to think about and to discuss and to talk about. If I take the we in your question to mean we academics, I, I couldn't agree more because we have less impact than we would want on political contexts. So what we have an impact on, as you just said, is the institutions that we work on. And my impression as a professor and also as a manager of an institute for advanced study is that academics have a tendency to not take institutions so seriously. And sometimes they even not value institutions enough. But I think in a context like ours, it's the academic institutions which are the only recourse, the only safe haven that academics can have. If the institutions don't defend academic freedom, then probably no one else will. And this starts with little things. I mean, I liked a lot what you said about creativity and organizational skills. Another thing sounds banal, but in everyday life, I see it every day. It takes courage. I see many, many institutions shying away from defense of their academic personnel, shying away from the freedom of expression of their people, of their 
forum of their stages. And I don't say academic institutions shouldn't listen to what public say, to what students say, to what political movements say. That's very important. You have to be open, you have to be sensitive. But the courage to, let's say, maintain a public discussion on a complicated, unpleasant matter, I think is essential. And I see far too many leaders of universities, research centers acting timidly in these times. When the shitstorm on Twitter, or now it's X, hits, then people get so scared and withdraw often from a necessary intervention or statement, often without any physical, moral or other force involved. It is often just the fear of bad reputation, the fear of conflict and so on and so forth. And I, I'm not saying I have that courage, but I, I would say it takes this courage to maintain things, even though at a given moment they might be very unpopular and contested and might create a strong cold wind around your institution and might make it look bad for a moment. But only then, if you use the opportunities that you have, only then is there a chance to keep that free space that an academic institution should be. Daring to get uncomfortable and exposing yourself to different views from those you hold yourself certainly also takes some courage, in particular in an environment where debates have become increasingly polarized. In the USA, students often demand so-called safe spaces that they're free of bias, conflict, criticism, or potentially threatening actions, ideas, or conversations. Andrea Talentino, professor of political science and president of Augustana College in the USA, explains how the teachers at the college go about to educate students to engage with different views. So the first important thing is to know that as a liberal arts college, our primary product is not research. Our primary product is impactful citizens. So our job is to educate students to be prepared to deal with national and global challenges, to work across differences, to understand that there's lots of different perspectives out there. And so that means that as educators, we have to be able to show students how to engage with different views, not shut out different views. And we do that by engaging in inclusive pedagogy where we set sort of norms for our class so that people understand they have to talk to and listen to each other. We have principles for our institution that reinforces that we are open to all ideas and that just because speech might make us uncomfortable or be different than our own views, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't listen to it. We do certainly care very much about ensuring that students are physically safe, but we also tell them that they aren't always going to feel intellectually safe or comfortable, and so they need to be ready to engage with ideas that may be really difficult for them and sometimes might even be offensive uh, to them. And so we try to reinforce those things through a variety of means. We also ensure that in our classrooms, in starting really with the time that students come to us the very first week, as when they're first-year students, we start reinforcing that these will be our expectations and really our community principles going forward and that we'll continue to reinforce them and develop them, but students need to be ready to engage. What do you think are the biggest threats to academic freedom at the moment? 
Well, in the United States, certainly uh, political trends are a huge threat, and we see politicians who are, particularly with public universities and colleges, increasingly trying to manipulate the faculty, dictate what can be taught and what can't be taught, and how the administration has to act. So that's certainly one big concern. The probably other biggest concern in the United States is the difference from state to state in terms of what is allowed to be talked about, how, for example, a state might view topics of diversity or socialism or global engagement. There are many states where you can't engage in that conversation at all, which makes it then really hard sometimes to interact with faculty and researchers in other states. So what can you do about this? We know that the generation that's currently in power is is troublesome, right? So we have to rely on what students will do and in, in, uh, young people coming up to be able to move the conversation in different ways. And so part of what we teach them from the very beginning is that they're going to go into the world after they leave our campus, and it's going to be up to them to impact things for the better. And in that world, they're going to have to be prepared to work across a whole variety of different perspectives. And they've got to be ready to engage with difficult conversations and really think about the challenges of the world that they need to move forward. So not every student is going to want to do that, but we find that many, many of our students really do go forward thinking about how they can start to chip away, as we say in the U.S., at some of these problems and move the conversation in positive ways rather than just accepting sort of where the debate is today and leaving it at that. The situation in the USA could provide a glimpse into the future in other countries. Fashit Yalalvand, PhD in bacteriology and vaccinology and member of the advisory board of the research program Democracy and Higher Education, briefly comments on this. Having a space to express a disappointment or an alternative view with whatever upsets you does not mean that the university guarantees that you will be happy or you will be spared from any negative feelings. It just gives you a space to voice your disagreement. It was sort of, for me, I was thinking this is maybe that we're peeking into the future of how situation will develop in Sweden and unfold here in Sweden, and that we can be a little bit prepared on how to handle these situations if they start to become more prevalent with, for instance, students that don't want to be subjected to theories that they find offensive. Finally, we round off this episode by going back to Shastrin Salin and her thoughts on collegiality and leadership. Collegiality is uh, a system for self-control. We have repeatedly here said that it is important that scientific work is governed by the scientific norms that we have and the scientific procedures so that it is the science that is controlled not that political or ideological or commercial interests come into. So collegiality is a system where we control each other through peer review, through selecting our leaders, selecting our bodies that decide on research grants, and in certain academic communities also selecting the people we want to have in sharing the big journals or the big um, scientific associations. So it's a system of self-governance, and it is uh, sort of the modus operandi, you could say, of universities, so that we together control each other instead of being controlled individually by the outside, by political measures. 
I also think that it is important that we make clear how and why we need to protect our and activate our self-governance. So it is important that we also talk to ourselves as an academic community. We sometimes describe collegiality as it's really a seamless connection between the scientific operations, doing research, having seminars, publicizing research, and governing. So it reflects, sometimes collegiality is described as chairing a seminar, really. And the good academic leader looks upon herself as a chairperson for a seminar. A university is built from the below. The expertise is out in the bottom, in the classrooms and in the labs. And the leaders are there to coordinate. Thank you for listening to SCAS Talks and this episode in our series SCAS Talks Spotlight, focusing on the event A Week on Academic Freedom held in Uppsala in October 2023. I would like to thank Shireen albeck Erbey, Shastin Salin, Sverke Salin, Daniel Schönflug, Johan Heilbronn, Andrea Talentino and Fashit Jalavand for talking to me. Thanks also to the organizers and the participants for insightful discussions during this interesting and intense week on academic freedom. And of course, thank you for listening. SCAS Talks is available on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and most podcast apps. In our regular episodes, we feature on the research of current and former scholars from a wide variety of disciplines, which is a reflection of the multi-interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS. Tune in if you're not a regular listener already. As always, we're also very happy if you can recommend this podcast to your colleagues and friends. Thanks again for listening and bye for now. Bye.